Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Red Shirts and Runabouts, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. This is one of your regular hosts, Greg Bosco, for episode 63. And with me, as always, is Mr. Derek. Say hi, buddy. Hello, Greg. Welcome back. Good to talk Trek as usual. It's good to be back. And uh, for everybody out there, you know, typically we do some news. We talk about an episode or two. We're going to do a couple things a little differently this week because there's been some outstanding questions on... uh, for Red Shirts and Runabouts and Star Trek Discovery in general, about like timelines and where things are and the order of things. And we're also going to discuss a random article, or article, like a random post from Memory Alpha, which is probably the, I don't know, Derek, the best way to describe it, probably the, the Wikipedia of Star Trek in lo- online information. Yeah, it's, it's considered the canon source. So for everybody out there who uh, likes discussing canon, at least like I do, uh, that's the place to go. If it's not in Memory Alpha in some capacity, then it's not officially canon. There is Memory Beta, uh, which includes what's called Beta Canon, which uh, involves the novels, some of the more official video games, comic books, things like that. So... Um, yeah, it's the Trek Wiki for everybody out there who might also be a Star Wars fan. It's similar to the Wikipedia, as it were. <laughs> that's that's a very good comparison because uh, Wikipedia is pretty huge and Memory Alpha is pretty huge. But before we before we talk about the uh, the random article from Memory Alpha, Derek, I know you got some feedback on the whole timeline stuff. I think we do need to kind of take care of it. All right, so um, I've, I've just been seeing a lot of posts online, people, you know, trying to guess who the Red Angel is or guess what we may or may not see in Discovery uh, this season or maybe even next season in season three. And I'm starting to notice that maybe people don't quite understand when Discovery takes place in relation to the rest of the Star Trek fandom that we're already familiar with. So I just wanted to provide some road signs for people from a time perspective. Um This past week's episode, If Memory Serves, which is the episode we'll be reviewing later on in our discussion today, um, that takes place in the year 2257, and Discovery basically starts in 2256, give or take. Um, So that's the year in which Discovery is happening. That's when we're seeing all of this stuff. Now, Enterprise, which was our first prequel show, is much earlier than that, basically 100 years earlier. Um... 
the finale of Enterprise, and that's the, the, these are the voyages. Uh, the the future time that that it's a little bit of a time jump is in the year twenty three seventy, but the show really ends in twenty one fifty five after Terra Prime. Um, which is the episode just before these are the voyages. So 2155 and Enterprise was four seasons. Each season was considered to be about a year. So it starts in approximately 2151. Okay, that's... Everybody seems to uh, forget that, you know, it had Enterprise continued, they were going to talk about the Romulan War. So, I mean, it that's how early that takes place, is it takes place before we even have legitimate contact with the Romulans. That's exactly right. Yeah, season five, uh, which had Doug Drexler's refit of the NX-01 with a secondary hull, which is beautiful, by the way, if you have not seen it. I recommend you look that up. But that was supposed to take place in season five, which would have been in the year 2156, give or take. Um, so that's when Enterprise is, about 100 years before Discovery. The original series, on the other hand, is where things get a little more complicated. So where No Man Has Gone Before is the second official pilot of Star Trek, right? The original pilot was the cage, um, which uh, we'll also talk about here in a moment, but uh, where no man has gone before is the first chronological episode where we see Captain Kirk commanding the enterprise. And that takes place in the year 2265. So that's eight years after this week's episode of discovery, if memory serves. So we are still eight years away from the original series. Yeah. And I think, that's something that they haven't really just come right out and said. I mean, they've said it. They've told people it's been on screen on, like, background and images and such. But I think people just... It's hard to keep track of, especially when you and I and a few of the others were talking about the original series, how so many episodes were out of order anyways. And, you know, the star date stuff has never made sense. You know, the 2009 movies tried making sense of the star dates by just using you know, year, month, day type thing, or mm-hmm. year, like year dot day in the day of the year. And that kind of made a little bit more sense, but yeah. So discovery takes place before the prime universe that we know of with the original series and especially the original series movies, which a lot of people seem to focus on more than anything. Cause even the movies take place, you know, 10 years or more after the TV show ended. Well, a good uh, mark point there is the Wrath of Khan, because uh, there is a gap between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. That's why we see a pretty big uniform change and, and technology change. Um, but the uh, Wrath of Khan, the search for Spock, and the voyage home are essentially back-to-back. You know, they're a trilogy. They happen over a really short period of time. And that the Wrath of Khan actually takes place in the year 2285, 20 years after where no man has gone before. So that means we're 28 years away from the Wrath of Khan, which puts us 29-ish years away from the search for Spock. Um, so that's kind of where Kirk, the Kirk-Spock-Bones trifecta is. That's far away from where we are right now. And additionally, the cage, which was the original pilot, which is what this week's episode is a sequel to, actually takes place in the year 2254, which is three years before this episode. Yeah, and even in the cage, I know people have been bringing up how Spock is a lieutenant in Discovery, but in the cage, they never called him a commander. The only commander that we knew of was number one. And even then, I don't even know if they ever call her commander. They just keep saying number one. 
No, you're absolutely right. Um, Spock gets a promotion by the time Kirk is commanded. Uh, by the time we see him in Where No Man Has Gone Before, he's been promoted to first officer at that point. We don't really know what happens in that time frame. Where does number one go? Does she leave with Pike? Does she get her own command? There's some stuff in the books, but again, nothing canon. Um, so Enterprise is 100 years ago. The Cage was three years ago. The original series starts eight years from now with the Wrath of Khan being 28 years from now. And then of course, you know, next gen stuff is the next century um, after that. So that's, that's where this takes place. Um, so just kind of keep that type of stuff in mind when you're thinking about who Spock is, you know, how we see him, what, what he is like from a personality perspective, what the, the events are leading up to, to these things. So what you're saying is that the Star Trek timeline's got a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. It's retconned all the time. <laughs> um, it's been retconned pretty much by itself since the beginning um, because they never, like you were saying, Greg, like the, the star dates were never intended to be taken seriously in the original series. They were just meant to sound sci-fi-ish. And then people started writing them down and trying to put things in order. So when Next Gen came out, they tried to take it more seriously, but the system was kind of broken. Um, they've never fixed it. Enterprise used normal dates, earth dates, um, for all of its episodes. So it was a little bit easier to know when things were actually happening, but discovery has decided to fall in line with basically what the original series used. Well, it's kind of along the same vein of trying to list all the Ferengi rules of acquisition. Depends well, on who you're talking to and depends on what episode you're watching. Cause none of them, they're all different. <laughs> Every who says it. <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right there's a nice twitter handle you can follow with the rules of acquisition though. <laughs> oh yeah there's a few other ones you know like Goog like Riker googling there's a few fun ones out there on watch picard's management tips yes there's that's a, a good one there are quite a few good star trek with uh twitter bots out there in the universe there's a, a, a acquaintance of mine um, that I, I want to just give a shout out to. He runs Routine Trek, where he basically writes short little pitches for routine episodes. And they're, they're pretty spot on. He does a good job. You know, there's a, another Trek podcast out there I listen to. It's a comedy podcast called Improvised Trek. Hmm. And uh, they basically, it's exactly what it sounds like, is people pitch them random episodes. And they have a cast of like five to seven voice actors. And... Uh, they they act it out and nice. they have a they have some semblance of a script but it's it, it's a lot of fun cool so well, from, that's cool. from the from the timeline discussion uh yeah this is something else we're going to throw into the podcast is the random memory memory uh alpha article and the they have a lovely random setting that you can pick on memory alpha so it's definitely recommended if you're just a big star trek fan and uh the one we drew today is from Deep Space Nine. The article is The Alliance for Global Unity, and I'm going to read their description here really quick from Odo. They're an extremist faction who believe in Bajor for the Bajorans and that all other species are inferior and should be expelled from the planet. Please, no references to 21st century politics because of this article. I did not write it. This is a Bajoran supremacy group. Yeah, it's, it's convenient timing for me because I'm doing a rewatch of DS9. So I've actually seen this pretty recently, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the quote that, that Greg read off there is from The Homecoming, uh, is the, the title of the episode. It was cool. It was very interesting. This is one of the, 
the early, like really heavy political episodes of DS9. Cause until this point, you know, the show has been very much about the Bajorans, about their spiritual spirituality and uh, their beliefs, their religion, and kind of the, the tensions between the Cardassians and the Federation. And this is the first time you start to see the political and military undertones that set the stage for what this show is really about. Yeah. Cause I mean, the next generation kind of talked about the Maquis a little bit and they did, they did some episodes even with Roe Laren and such and meeting him, but they never really got too much into the overall politics of things like DS9 did. And this is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of fans consider DS9 to maybe be the most adult of the Trek shows because it deals with politics and terrorism and PTSD and war and horrific crimes occasionally. And this is another one of those examples because it's so it's so based on human history where you have an oppressed peoples that finally throw off the oppressors. And there is going to be a small part of that population who... <laughs> want to see their people basically rise above doesn't matter if they're sound threatening it it it's something that rings true throughout human history yeah absolutely uh ds9 was always the more complex show you know for for better or for worse you know not it's not a value judgment but they had they were really the first opportunity to do serialized star trek um and these arcs of what happened between the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And then later, like you were saying, the Maquis, which leads into the Dominion war. I mean, this, this show really focused on a lot of heavy issues that impacted us in, in more than just a couple of episodes, you know, where on TNG, sure. There were some two parters and there were some minor arcs like Picard's Borg assimilation or data's data discovering his humanity. But overall it was an episodic thing, just like Voyager and we didn't see Star Trek like DS9 again until the third season of Enterprise. Yeah, and this is another example where they always kind of talked about it in DS9 that the Bajoran government early on after the, uh, the after the occupation ended wasn't the most stable of governments. And this episode kind of showed it because there's even back and forth between like Bajoran legitimate politicians talking about how uh, some of the some of the ideas of this group kind of make sense and. It it shows the shakiness after, you know, Kira always talking about, you know, they fought the Cardassians for decades and millions of their people are dead. It's taking them decades to recover. They even said it's going to take longer for them to recover or rebuild Bajor than how long the Cardassians were on Bajor at one point. And that's just something where, again, DS9 kind of touches on those sensitive topics that, you know, we, we don't like to talk about as like a species like Today, in the 21st century, this kind of political talk is pretty damn sensitive. Understandably so. But DS9 was jumping into this, you know, 20 years ago, and you know what the hell with it. Here you go. Here's a horrible war, and here's a Bajoran supremacy group. Oh, and by the way, the Bajorans are going to have awesome storylines for the next seven years. Mm -hmm. This is also where we get a really solid understanding of who Wynn Adami is. And she later, of course, becomes Kai Wynn. And... This episode is really where you see her insidious, deceitful nature because, you know, up until this point, she's obviously, um, you know, very much on one side of the conversation. She just uh, takes her faith very seriously. She's very much into protecti protecting Bajorans and focusing on Bajoran cultural education, right? Um, but... <laughs> Uh, at the by the end of the episode, you see that 
we don't even know how much of that version of uh, Wynn is real because she's ready to stage a military coup just to put herself in political power. And so now you've learned that she's she is a villain on DS9 and probably I mean Goldie Cott's pretty fantastic. I don't want to take anything away from him, but Kai Win I can't she I can't stand watching her. She's so evil. She's so calculated and and mean-spirited constantly. Um and it seems that she's always out for herself and her own power. Right. Whereas, you know, Gold Ducat is he might be an evil MF, but uh, he um, he's doing it for Cardassia until he, you know, of course, goes crazy at the end with the pot wraith. But um, this episode really gets to show you who Wynn is before she ends up in power. Well, and it also alludes to the fact that Ducat, I've always, you know, I've been saying this for years. He's one of my favorite Star Trek villains. He may be one of my he might be my favorite Star Trek villain, but you can kind of. He's a, he's a, such a good villain that he's evil, but you like you said you understand why he's evil. But even when, you know, even when he they reoccupy DS Nine, he wants to be friends with like Kira, and Kira's like, "What do you think's going to happen here?" But Kai Win is the kind of villain where she will legitimately stab you in front, like facing you, and have no doubt. She's like, "Yeah, I hurt you, but I still expect you to be loyal to me." It's like she can't see beyond the impacts of her own actions, whereas. You know, Ducat, the whole, he, even the older he gets, the more you can kind of see until, like you said, until the paw rate thing, he kind of has regrets and he kind of has balance. Kai Wynn almost doesn't even have that. She's just flat out, I don't care if I step on other Bajorans, I'm going to get the power that I want. Mm -hmm. And plus she's like, uh, Dolores Umbridge. She gives me the reminder of Dolores Umbridge from freaking Harry Potter. Yes, that's exactly who I was thinking of. I couldn't, the name was not coming to me, but yes, exactly. That's exactly the type of villain she is. So I'm, I'm quoting it. I, am I one of the, I'm one of the first people I know of that's linked Harry Potter and Star Trek like that. Because of, <laughs> there we go. We got villains that are so evil that you don't realize it. But yeah, Dolores Umbridge is Kai Wynn. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for everybody out there, you know, Derek and I could probably talk DS9 for hours. And <laughs> we don't want to turn this into too much of a multi-episode thing. But yeah, we wanted to pull up an article, a random article, the, you know, the Alliance for Global Unity is the article. And it's basically a Bajoran supremacist group. And, you know, they don't care who they step on, either other Bajorans, if they mm -hmm. think that they're going to limit limit what they want. And again, this isn't the DS9 episode, don't get me no. wrong, but but we wanted to have some fun. And yeah. it, it, it's a good reminder that DS9 had a hell of a lot of good episodes. And I guess just just in case anyone the name isn't ringing a bell, they they do go by the circle most of the time in the episode, um, rather than the full the full name. If that rings a bell for you. And so as Derek begins his great DS Nine or continues his great DS Nine rewatch, uh, I think tonight after recording, I'm going to start my Voyager rewatch. Oh, Voyager! I love Voyager. It, it's <laughs> it's been a long time, and I got you know some of those early episodes are rough, but so is TNG, and I'll get through them. Yeah, season one of Voyager is a little rough. It's only 16 episodes. Um, I do think the premiere is really great. I'm a big Voyager fan. I actually, I find it the easiest to watch while I'm like multitasking. So I've actually watched Voyager more than any other Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like me with Lord of the Rings. I can have Lord of the Rings on in the background anytime. But again, not a Lord of the Rings podcast. No. That's, that's, a, that's a different goal for Derek and I. 
But, well, all right. Uh, so, so let's do this before before we take a quick break to do our to our episode. I just want to plug for anybody who's going to be in Kansas. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Kansas City, that Planet Comic Con, the last weekend in March, Greg and I will be doing a live episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts on that Saturday. Um, you can find out information um, at uh, on our on our handles and stuff at Red Shirts Pod. But we're doing a live episode there. We would love it if you could come and join us in the audience. It'll be interactive. We're going to build the ultimate Star Trek crew, which is a uh, a panel that uh, I, I got to do once at a uh, Wizard World convention. Um, and now I'm excited to be able to do it with my co-host. It's much more fun that way. So uh, join us if you can. And you can't just pick Worf for every single spot on the ship. <laughs> no, no, there are going to be rules to this. There are going to be rules. And a character is only in one possible job position slot. So, Although I do think Worf as the ship's counselor would be would be a great benefit. <laughs> Remember when he's giving advice to Leslie Crusher on dating? Right. You can always go to her door and beg like a human. I just... <laughs> That's the advice I intend to, you know, give my child. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> do what you gotta do. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will talk about Star Trek Discovery, if memory serves. Hey, why play video games when you could watch people play video games? Why watch people play video games when you could listen to people talk about video games? Come rest your eyes and hands with the Gamer Heroes podcast. We'll cover the latest news in games, previews, reviews, and more coming your way every Wednesday morning. Come check us out as part of the Heroes Podcast Network at heroespodcasts.com or find us on Spotify, iTunes, Spreaker, or, you know, other podcast places. Give us a listen to help you get through your busy day or even just forget you left it playing in your headphones. We're cool with that, too. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, Derek and I just did a bit of a recap with uh, the Random Memory Alpha article and talking about the overall timeline of Star Trek, especially with the uh, Star Trek Discovery focus right now, since there's a lot of questions on when things are happening and what year things are happening. But, you know, typically with Discovery, we want to talk about the episode this week. And the most recent episode was Episode 8, If Memory Serves, which is obviously... Probably the episode title that's most on point with uh, the whole season right now. And before we dive into it too much, I um, I'm just gonna say I I loved it. This was a fan. I thought it was a fantastic episode. Oh yeah, there there is so much to like about this episode. It's almost hard to know where to start. Um, but 
yeah, it was it was wonderful from the get go. Um, you know, I, I guess you know, spoiler alert for if memory serves, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, you should. The opening by them actually using and showing clips from the cage, um, and and it was it was super cool. I mean, it's the first time that the that era has really been officially shown. You know, since I think you know. Uh, trials and tribulations uh which is another ds9 episode of course um but it was so neat for them to basically do a you know previously on star trek <laughs> by using yeah, clips from the it's cage exactly it's exactly what it was it was it reminded me of uh you know i love the new battlestar galactica but the whole previously on battlestar galactica and they just, <laughs> episode clip episode clip episode clip and in two minutes you already know what the hell's going on and um, fair to say, I think this kind of puts everything to end on, is this in the prime timeline or not? Because they're using prime canon material, right? I mean, kind of. Yeah. I mean, look, all the showrunners, the writers, the actors have said Discovery has been in the prime timeline and a lot of fans or not uh, have tried to argue that. And this this is kind of the nail in that coffin. You know, it's as canon as it gets. It's It's in the same universe as the original pilot. There's a character from the original pilot in this episode that's not a main cast crew. It's, you know, it, I mean, they don't even waste any time with that. But, you know, I love... This episode was great. Everything from the Section 31 engagement to Giorgio. Again, she's not even doing a power play. She's just letting... I, don't, I can't even think of the captain's name. I keep wanting to call him Captain Landis, and that's not it. Uh, the section, The male Section 31 captain. The bald guy with the beard. I can't think of his name. Oh, man. Um... Doesn't matter. Not right now. <laughs> Giorgio, here's the thing is, Giorgio, you know, I, I read online, I keep talking, people keep listening to people like, oh, Giorgio's doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, Giorgio actually ain't doing shit. She's letting him fall apart, and she's just there to be like, uh, I told you. It's uh, it's Leland, by the way. Captain uh, Leland, yeah. I, just, I don't I know why I could say up. Landis. It, um, but. It, it kind of shows how like, and no offense to, to the actor or anything, but like how little significance we've kind of put into that character. Cause I can't remember his name. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not, I'm usually the guy that, you know, I still remember Robin Leffler from 25 years ago. And it's not cause I had a crush on Ashley Judd. It's cause sure, Robin sure, Leffler's, sure. well, I mean, okay, that's part of it, but it's cause her character was interesting. She had engagement with Will Wheaton or Wesley Crusher. I, this guy is just, I don't know. It's just almost like stereotypical of a, I'm evil agent, man. You can tell I'm evil agent, man. That's like, uh, I don't know. But anyways, let's get, let's get back to the episode. Not, this is not a Captain Leland podcast. So yeah, so I just love that they use that old footage. Um, you know, it's something that a lot of people may not have seen because, uh, you know, the original pilot was not even aired until the eighties. Um, and, the archival footage was used in the menagerie. So if you're not an original series person, you may not have ever seen any of this. And even if you have the Blu-rays, you know, it's not super easy to find the cage. It's actually on the end of season three, the last disc of season three. So um, it was really cool. It's really neat to see that. And then we get to see so much more, right? We actually get to go to Talos, which, I mean, they have the singing plants. The singing flowers are there. It sounds exactly like it did in the original. And before we even get to the planet, though, I love when they come out of warp and they think it's a black hole. 
Oh yeah, and sorry. That is that is super reminiscent of stuff they did in Next Generation with that one planet that could hide itself or cloak itself. It's all about. I mean, if the Talosians are that powerful telepathically, they have no idea why a Federation shuttlecraft just came out of warp. They have no idea what they're there for. So of course they're going to be on the defensive until you know they realize. However, it is like, oh, this is Spock. We can drop our guard for whatever reason. And I thought the Talosians looked cool. I thought they were. I thought the use of Vina was neat to wander into the shuttlecraft and she recognized Spock because she has met Spock. Yeah, it I mean it's completely in character with the Telosians, right? That their whole shtick is that. And in the cage, you know, they're not trying to keep anybody away because the whole point was to bring someone to them. And they did that with a very powerful image of the crashed ship and the survivors, and they actually had created multiple people for this whole you know, this whole menagerie. Um, <laughs> uh, there you go. Said the thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was super cool and seeing what, you know, what they can do obviously with a, you know, a legitimate budget. Um, that black hole looked super cool. And I, I kind of liked the bantering that the little battle between Burnham and Spock, because she's like, we have to get the hell out of here. And he's like, he just keeps hitting the controls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just, he, he knows exactly what he needs to do. And he's like, just deal with it. And we're going to figure it out from here. Mm-hmm. But I mean, um, he, like we talked about last week, he has memories of being the Talos, and he knows he remembers their mental powers. So it's actually perfectly logical for him to seek out a people that he knows have extreme advanced medical and mental t- t- uh, capabilities. Absolutely. I mean, he's. It's interesting because I, I would love to have some better explanation or, or image of what's going on in his head because we're we're explained now finally that. He's not thinking in a linear way. The Telosians tell us this. So they're able to see through that. They're able to perceive time in a non-linear way, which is, you know, something other aliens have been able to do. You know, for example, um, you know, the uh the wormhole aliens, right? The prophets, they're able, they're they're not linear. They don't even understand linear time until much later. Um and so it's interesting to see that the the Telosians can handle that as well. And they have to kind of sort things out for Spock. I can't even fathom what it must be like to experience time in a non-linear fashion. Just is must must be incredibly taxing on on it, a human mind. Yeah, and it's very reminiscent of the book Dune. How when certain humans are exposed to spice and the way it can really impact them. Like, okay, I'm not going to talk about Dune too much, but Paul Trades, <laughs> you know, when he becomes the Quezat Tadarak, he starts seeing time as like very fluid like it like there is no past present future he's like i've become something more than that uh it does bring up a fun theory that the red angel is actually a a wormhole alien and it actually is one of their little orbs flying around and the joke of the the race that spock sees in the future is actually you know 500 years in the future or something and it's the dominion who conquered the galaxy or something which i don't think they're going to do that because it'd be too easy of a way to shoehorn already in a current race yeah and i hopefully you know, hopefully they don't pull in some, or, you know, oh, look, a synthetic race that wants to destroy organics. I'm like, let's not do that trope either. But it's cool how whatever this thing is messed with Spock's mind, because maybe the Red Angel doesn't realize the impact it has on other telepathic beings or something. I don't know. It's, it's you know, but it was fun. And I even like how the Telosians are like, yeah, we'll help you, but you got to give us something. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of reminiscent of their, them in the original series where... You know, they can imagine it. They can imagine so much. They can create anything with their brain, but they still need to kind of feed off 
others to have a better understanding of just things around them. And it's the whole burn of memory with, uh, with Spock, which, okay, I have to admit that I was wrong. It was not a romantic thing. I thought they were, I thought they were messing with us. I thought they were just trying to throw us off. It was, uh, it was a very non romantic comment. No, I, I definitely believe them when they said it wasn't going to be anything romantic. I, I, I believe that. Um, yeah, so that was kind of an interesting thing, right? I guess we could talk about the memory. I wasn't sure where they were going to go with it. Um, I knew that they had built it up, so it was going to have to be bad. She was going to have to say something really bad or do something really bad for this to hold up to what they've been doing. And, I mean, it hit the mark. She's pretty brutal to him. Um, I'm surprised that by his adult age that we see him in now that he hasn't worked through the logic as to what she was actually doing. Um Obviously, as a kid, it would have been terrible and it would have hurt him dearly. But um, you would think that the logical Spock that, you know, he was prior to the Red Angel showing up the second time, he would have worked out why she did that. But uh, I guess not. And it's a little convenient of a way to explain the divide between them, I guess. Well, and, you know, for our listeners out there, Burnham is trying is basically threatening to run away from home because she's trying to save their family and such. She's worried about the Vulcan ex- extremists targeting them. And Spock doesn't want her to leave. At that point, Spock, they've been together a few years, obviously. And Spock is like, you know, I don't want you to go. I love you. And, you know, she's like, you don't understand what love is. Get away from me, you weird little half-breed. Which, again, is... I'm going to pull it out. It's another Harry Potter reference to the Mudbloods. Uh, <laughs> when you insult somebody's, you know racial background which is definitely not where i thought they were going to go i actually thought it was going to be something like Sarek saying i love you to burnham mm-hmm. and spock realizing wait a second you've never said that to me in my entire life and you're going to say that to michael burnham and then he just he's like all right well the hell with all of you i'm going to go do my own thing but this was diff- this was definitely a different bit of a that was a different kind of punch i wasn't expecting that it's now here's here's something interesting and and maybe there's nothing to it more than it just being referential but it it is the same insults that Kirk uses uh later um in the original series uh, a couple of times I think actually um and you know it's used as a way for Spock to know something's up to know something's wrong Right. To, to know that Kirk is trying to tell him something important. So it's interesting. I don't know if that means that there's going to be some type of resolution here where it's where Spock now knows it's some type of code that can be used. But I thought it was an interesting of all the things Burnham could have said. It, it's the specific thing that Kirk had used or will use, I guess, uh, soon. Does, does that mean Kirk and Burnham are going to meet before Discovery ends? You're going to have a <laughs> A little Kirk, a cat, a cadet somewhere on the ship, just you know, seventeen-year-old on his first voyage into space before he goes back to the academy or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a good question. It is a good question. Um, we don't know much about Kirk's career prior to the Enterprise. We know that he served on the Farragut at one point, but we don't necessarily know how long. We don't know if that was the only other ship he was on um, or anything really like that, as far as canon's concerned. So. I don't know. It, it might explain why she doesn't come up in the final frontier because they already know about her. So there's no sense in just, she's not relevant to that story or 
who knows? Um, but, uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting little tie in. Um, do you, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a tough insult for sure. It's, it's definitely mean, but I get why she did it. You know, she wants to protect him and she wants to protect uh, her adoptive parents and her family and, you know, thinks that this is the only way to do it. And I guess, you know, I could see the logic in, I'd rather him, I'd rather hurt his feelings and have him hate me than have him dead. Yeah. I mean, that's humans do have a little self-destructive path now. And then if we're worried about hurting somebody and we try to chase them away, that's a very human characteristic. And it's very, very young teenage characteristic as well, where kids push away their parents or, you know, they scare away their first boyfriend or girlfriend with something they say. That's it's the sign of immaturity uh, because they're just young. They don't understand. And plus she's a human living on Vulcan she does not like she gets a whole bunch of emotional development aside from whatever Amanda could do for her. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I actually get it. And, but speaking of emotional development, I'm not trying to jump ahead, but I am. Okay. <laughs> so the, the fight on discovery between Culber and Tyler. Ah, yes. Okay. So to, to talk about this, I know we're jumping around here, but this episode kind of jumped. It's, this is, Doctor Who, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Uh, so we're, we're jumping around a little bit. But I actually loved the interaction between Culber, Culber and Stamets. When Stamets is trying to kind of act like things are normal. And, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And Culber's kind of freaks out in, the, in, the, in, their, in their room. He's like, you know, I've been gone six months. Things are different. You know, I went through hell. And Stamets wants him back because he wants his better half back. But Culber, even Culber's like, I'm a different person now than what I went through. You have to move on. And he's damaged. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't love statements. It's that he just can't, he can't pretend that nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And so he's already at like an emotional high when he encounters Tyler in the, uh, I don't know. I don't even think they give it a name. It's not 10, like it's not 10 forward. It's not the cafeteria. There's where they go to eat. I I just (laughs) assume they call it the mess hall. Yeah. The mess hall. Um, so that's, yeah. that's basically what Voyager called it. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, they, uh, we got to see if they have a little chef somewhere hiding in the background, just like on the Orville. But again, it kind of brings up a good point where I was actually surprised that Culber, I'm not, I wasn't surprised by the fight. I was surprised by Saru's reaction. We need to let this play out. I'm like, what if, what if Vogue comes back and he just kills Culber again? <laughs> I'm like... Damn, Saru, you're taking an awfully big risk here with a man that half the crew doesn't trust, who just got decked, and uh, Pike already has trust issues with, even though they kind of have that love-hate brother relationship. It's an intense scene. It definitely shows, and I think Pike makes this point really well, that this Saru is, is a different Saru now that he's, you know, doesn't have his threat ganglia anymore, and he's, you know, evolved, so to speak, um, as a Kelpian it changes who he is. It changes the risks that he would take, the chances he would take. And I don't think that the Saru six months ago or a year ago would have possibly let, let the situation play out the way it did. Um, with that said, you know, maybe the risk wasn't as high because Tyler doesn't want to hurt Culber. Tyler feels guilt for what happened. He knows it, it wasn't within his control. He knows it wasn't, you know, quote, his fault, so to speak. Um, but he, he does feel bad about it. He seems like a, a genuinely good person who's trying to do good things. 
even if he's stuck with section 31 it's you know probably the only place he can do lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do anything. Um, so there might be that kind of argument to be made that... Saru knows Tyler at this point and knows Tyler doesn't want to hurt Colbert. He'll push him away and, and get, you know, hold him down and things like that to stop the fight. But he's not going to try and kill him. I think, you know, Colbert's the one who doesn't really know. Colbert's the one who's been missing. He's been gone. He's finally back. He doesn't really understand who Tyler is. Um, and it's intense. I mean, I, what what is the, the psychological uh, prescription here? I mean, we don't. First off, we don't really have a counselor on the ship, to my knowledge. Uh, I'm sure some of the doctors are trained, of course, in psychiatric medicine and, and counseling. But you know, this is early on. There aren't counselors on these ships like there are in Next Generation. So, w- But what would you tell this person? Hey, so you died, and now you're back because we rebuilt you using different matter. And then this guy, well, there was another guy who was in his body, and he's the one who kills you. But he's gone now, and it's just this guy now. And it's not his fault. And you got to work together. <laughs> it's literally a recipe for disaster. And <laughs> so I get that. And I kind of understand also, I'm, I'm going to say this from a, from a, like a creation point of view, like an, like as an artist or whatever, they have to acknowledge the, their relationship somehow. They call Bert Tyler. They can't just push it, keep putting it off episode after episode. Cause the fans are going to, the fan, all of us are like, all right, what the hell? This is, they can't avoid each other forever. Because mm-hmm. that's too simple of a solution, and eventually things are going to come to a head. And it just this episode kind of reminded me that Tyler is rapidly moving up my favorite character scale when he's not throwing around his little Section Thirty One badge. Like, <laughs> here you go. I thought that was lame, but his interactions here, excuse me, I really like that. I really like seeing let the let the actor be an actor, let him have the emotional struggles and combat with himself and not wanting to hurt Culber and also not wanting to scare the cast, the crew that are slowly starting to trust him every episode mm-hmm. as we go on. He knows if, I think you're right. I think he knows if he pushes too far, then he's going to, he starts over at zero all over again. And I think, you know, a ton of credit has to be given to Shazad Latef because he's, that's the actor. He is just fantastic. Uh, he's been fantastic the the entire time he's been on the show, uh, which is why, you know, maybe he wasn't originally supposed to be in season two. And because he was a fan favorite, they they created this role for him. I don't care because I'm glad he's on the show. Um, it's a tough role, right? I mean, you know, we, we poke fun a bit at him tossing the Section 31 badge because the idea that Section 31 has badges is kind of silly. But, you know, he's also in an impossible position. He works for an organization that doesn't really fit who he is person on the inside. It's not who he is. Number one, number two, that organization is hated by the captain of the ship that he's on. Right. And he kind of reports to Pike, but he also doesn't report to Pike. So he has to throw his weight around. He has to assert himself when Pike is not doing what section 31 has ordered him to do or advised him to do or whatever. Um, And then on top of that, the crew, a lot of the crew doesn't like him. A lot of the crew might even hate him because that shell 
killed Culber. It did, no question, and spied on them and so forth. And then you bring Culber into it. And you're right, like they had to address this. This has to be addressed. I don't care how big this ship is, you're gonna bump into each other. You know, uh, this sh- yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, especially, I mean, it's, you know, especially because first off, Tyler is, I guess he's not really a bridge officer necessarily, but he's at that level from a rank perspective. And, you know, Colbert was a doctor on the ship uh, and his, um, partner is an engineer, the spore drive expert on the ship. Like these are all important people on the ship. These are not, you know, random ensigns, you know, these are very important crew members. They're going to bump into each other. It's just a matter of time. And this was a good opportunity to do it when the crew is split up because you know that Discovery itself can't be doing a ton of things while Burnham is gone because, you know, they've they've got two different stories to balance. So this was a good opportunity to do it, I think. And I thought it was handled really well. The, the fight was emotional. It was intense and raw. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I just... Um, I find it really interesting, right? Star Star Trek at the end of the day for me has always been about the characters. It's been about the people, their relationships to each other. And this is something we've never been, we've never seen before. And it's something we're not able to see on most storytelling, right? Because it's a sci-fi thing. And it's another example where this is like, I don't even know if this is like the C or D plot of the episode, because there's so many stories gone going. You got, Spock and Burnham with the Telosians. You have Pike being ordered by the Admiral Staff to research the probe because, like, where the hell does probe come from? You got Miriam in the background. You've got Culber and Tyler. Uh, you've got Culber and Stamets. So you got so much stuff that's all happening at basically the exact same time where they're all interconnected to each other. They're all, you know, Tyler and Culber connected and Culber and Stamets are connected and Stamets and Tilly are connected because they got a nice nice little bond growing and so Tilly's worried about them and Tilly's also dealing with the probe and dealing with Miriam and dealing with Pike and so it's all they're all separate stories that are all kind of building up towards each other which is again kind of neat because it's not just four or five separate storylines that don't impact each other they all they all impact each other in one way or, or another mm-hmm um, I was curious because, you know, we're talking about, you know, at some point these characters, Tyler and uh, Culber had to come face to face. And I just, I was curious how, how quickly this would happen. Um, so the Crossfield class starship, which is what the discovery is only has a crew, crew complement of 136. Uh, now, the building I work in has like 1800 people. <laughs> the, which one? <laughs> the building I work at has like oh. 1800 people. Well, let's, here's some perspective I think that's really important. First off, the original Enterprise was just over 200. The Enterprise D is about 1,000 if you include the uh, family on board and the non, non-Starfleet non staff. Voyager. Voyager has more people on board than the Discovery. <laughs> so the only ship that has less is the Defiant, and that fairly counts. Right. The Defiant and the NX-01 Enterprise are smaller. (laughs) And the Defiant is a combat ship designed for minimal crew. Right. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, this is a tiny ship. It might look very large because of of its aesthetics. You know, the cells are huge. It's got the spinning saucer section and stuff. But there's not a lot of meat to it. This is a small group of people. Two out of these 136 were bound to bump into each other. So, So for anybody who disagrees. compared all the hull damage from a couple episodes ago when they half jumped into the spore universe and ate away 77% of their haul. 
Well, the ship looked fine, but uh, the ship looks fine. So, all right, so let's let's go back to Talos for a little bit here. Um, what? How do you feel personally about the Talosians? How they looked, the style that we got in Discovery. I loved it. I mean, I thought you could definitely knew you. De- I knew exactly what they were, even if you wouldn't have mentioned the name. They looked like 2019 version of Talosians, where it's not just you know a, a plastic bag over somebody's head with some with some paper mache. They used legitimate prosthetics to give them a specific and alien look. They even have them speaking tele- telepathically before they're like, "Yeah, I guess we can use primitive, primitive tongues." <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the Talosians I remember from the original series. Maybe a little. Maybe the ones in this episode were a little less evil, but the ones that were evil in the beginning were early on evil. They obviously weren't evil when they let Pike come to live with them. Yeah, I, I mean, so first off, okay, I, I agree with you. I think they looked great. I love the design. They, you know, they kept they kept the the essence of what they looked like in the cage, much like the new Enterprise uniforms, you know, that we saw Pike and Number One wearing. Um, you know, they've done a really good job of updating things with new production value, you know, new technologies, new budget, that type of thing. Um, I don't know that it's fair to ever paint the Talosians as as evil. Um, because, you know, even what they were trying to do in the cage, what, you know, I don't really think it's fair to say is, is evil necessarily. They, they end up doing, once they comprehend everything, they end up doing the right thing, but they're so detached from humanity by the time we find them, because keep in mind, like they're nearing extinction here. They've, they've basically wiped themselves out. So they're so disconnected from what we consider to be humanity that they just don't even comprehend the situation. They don't understand it. Once they finally understand it, then they do the right thing. And here they're willing to help. Like why, why are they willing to help if they're so terrible? Right. They have no reason to help Spock. What do they care? They saw him for five minutes. Remember you know? that TS9, that the TS9, the TNG episode, I think it was what the last outpost about the Takan empire, the first encounter with the Ferengi mm-hmm. and Everybody hated the Ferengi because they were they were just annoying and they were blithering and they were frustrating and they whatever they they did weird animal noises like that was our first encounter with the Ferengi and then people just whatever they kind of moved on but then you got to know the Ferengi more and more throughout TNG you really got to know them in DS9 and universally when people name their top five characters from DS9 it's going to have some combination of quark in there. <laughs> <laughs> because they love him, they thought he was entertaining, they thought Rom was neat and kind of goofy. So again, yeah, we only saw the Talosians as bad for a few minutes in the, in the early episode. But then, you know, they do, they they realize their mistakes, and they, they're helping Vina, and they later on they have a, they're helping Pike, and they have no reason to help Pike in the original series, but it's, they do. And because it costs them nothing. And it, they're helping Vina because it costs them nothing. And so yeah, I'm I'm with you. It's I thought their look was fantastic though. They looked like modern versions of what they were and you know, maybe that's a good throwback or a good acknowledgement on the production team where you know, for better or for worse, the the Klingons physically were not well received last year on season no. 1. And maybe this they're making some changes to the Klingon look and maybe this is another throwback to going, "Hey, you know, we are still Star Trek fans. This is what our version of the Talosians are." I mean, but hell, even in this episode, 
Remember when all the admirals are talking to uh, Pike? Yes. And you had another good-looking Vulcan. You had an Andorian that looked great. You had a Tellarite that looked great. And we don't get to see Tellarites often at all. No. But the found, the founding members of the Federation are on that Admiral's Council. Vulcan, Andorian, Tellarite, and human. And the Tellarite looked like a Tellarite. You know, a, a bipedal, you know, pork sign, pig-like creature. And... The, the Talosians look like Talosians, and maybe it's the production crew going, yeah, maybe we maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to what they used to look like or something. I don't know. They nailed it. They did. They nailed it. You're right. And, I mean, the, the, the other aliens look great. You know, that that's a cool scene with Pike, you know, when they're having that conference. I liked it a lot. It's, it's, it's a shame we don't get to see more Andorians and more Tellarites and uh, uh, some of these other species. I mean, Andorians really only got a spotlight in Enterprise, Thanks to Jeffrey Combs, you know, Shran character. Um, but other than that, we rarely see the Andorians. They, they just kind of get pushed to the side and we are always focusing. It's Vulcans, Romulans and Klingons, you know. Um, but uh, speaking but yeah. of which, I'm, I'm looking at my recording. Did I just go on a four minute rant about the, the look of the Telosians and the, the Andor, the and the, the Federation no. founding member species. I'm sorry. I won't do that no. again. No. But no, you're right. I, I actually agree with you. I wish they would have more, you know, as much as I love uh, like Tilly and such, and Miriam's kind of neat, it'd be cool to have a true Andorian side character. Mm-hmm. And I love Saru, but Andorians would be fun, or a Teleray would be cool. We don't really get to see those on a main cast and crew, I don't think ever, except like you said, Jeffrey, or Shran, Jeffrey Combs from Enterprise, who's played like 85 different aliens anyways. <laughs> <laughs> he is great he's played a Ferengi and uh um that was a, a fun role for him but uh but anyway um so let's he talk was also he was also in Babylon 5 that's right there you go there you go and he voiced the question on Justice League the car the animated cartoon uh, Jeffrey Combs multi-talented so yeah um, Renaissance man. <laughs> um all right so so let's talk about Vina because this is a really big deal so yeah, Ethan Peck is Spock, and we can talk about whether or not we think he's a good Spock. But he's not the only original series character that they've recast. They've recast Pike, of course, now with Anson Mount. Rebecca Romaine is number one, who still doesn't have a name. Um, <laughs> and now they uh, recast Vina, who, you know, is in. she's from the cage. She's the original, original character that we see. Um, she is played by Melissa George who I actually don't really know that well. I've seen a few things that, that she's been in over the years, um, but not, not a lot um, to be perfectly frank. So I'm not overly familiar with her. You know, she was in 30 days a night, uh, which was a while ago now, uh, but she's done a lot of TV. She's acted in a ton of things, uh, big shows that I, you know, I just haven't watched like the good wife and she was on Grey's anatomy and uh, alias, you know, so she's been on a lot, a lot of big stuff. Um, what did you what did you think of her performance as Avina? I thought she did great. I thought she played at the emotional strings of Pike because obviously they had that connection when they met. I thought she looked good. I even liked the way they kind of did her hair, which is a little throwback to original series how some of the female characters had to wear their hair. Yes, I thought I thought that was a nice little touch. I thought she looked the part, acted the part, and I kind of like how they did the whole telepathy thing where the Telosians are essentially letting her reach out and talk to Pike because even though Pike's gone their mental powers are so good they still know that she has a connection to him and they're yeah it's easy to say that they're using that connection but 
they don't really gain anything from it, but they still get to help out her. And at some point, you have to acknowledge that they care about her somewhat or they would just want to let her die. I mean, she's not like she's providing that much entertainment value for them. I mean, it's... Let's be real here. No, I, I feel like they make it clear at the end of the cage, even, that they're there to care for her, and they were looking for another human because they thought she needed companionship. They, she needed a mate. They were doing that for her, not as much for them. Um, and so this is another example of that, I think. And it's a pretty amazing scene when she just shows up in Pike's office, ready room, you know, quarters, whatever. Uh, not quarters, it's his ready room. But that when he sees her reflection on the table and then like does the double take, I mean, Anson Mount is just crushing this role every week. Well, and that's going to be the problem next year. Cause like you said, a couple of, well, a couple episodes ago, Captain Pike can't be gone from the enterprise forever. So Anson Mount can't stay on discovery for just years, but he's killing it. He's knocking it out of the park as captain, as captain Pike, as a Starfleet captain, he's doing phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so bittersweet, right? Because the, the the more we see of Pike, the 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 more Anson Mountain does, the better this character gets fleshed out. The harder it is to think about where his character ends. And you could say, yeah, he kind of gets the happy ending going back to Talos Four, but he still has to go through the accident and end up in that chair and go through the events of the menagerie, and you know, it's still it's still a um, a projection it's still an illusion it's not real you know necessarily what he ends up with and you know look i hopefully he's happy at the end you know but it's tough because like man like if you want to talk about spinoff series how cool would it be to just have a pike show you know um with the adventures of him in number one i would watch the hell out of that i mean i want i follow him on twitter and aside from him being engaged with fans like every day he's talking to fans about something you know, people are drawing like portraits of him as mm-hmm. Pike, and he's using them as his Twitter avatar. I mean, the dude obviously loves this role, and I don't think he's obviously not going to want to leave. But I don't know what the showrooms are going to do when they realize that, you know, shit, we keep trying to make Saru captain, but, and, you know, Lorca, Lorca was a good character. He was entertaining, he was engaging, and he was a good actor. And now you got Anson Mount, who's doing even better, I think, as a Starfleet captain. And, you know, I know early on some of the discussions of his character were going to be a little bit more, like, religious-themed. I'm glad they kind of dropped that. But Anson Mount is a hell of an actor. And I, like you said, I don't know what they're going to do. I have no idea how they get out of this. I, I love this character. Because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, they need these people to all be different, right? Because that's always the argument. Is it, you know, is it Kirk or Spock? Is it Cisco? Is it Janeway? Is it Archer? Well, now, is it Pike? Is that your favorite captain? Because they are all incredibly different people. And, you know, I, I may not be a religious person, but I, you know, know that, that people are, of course. And having Pike have the respect for for faith that he had was a different take on a captain. Our other captains have not been shown to be religious at all. Um, and it was interesting to see a different take on that. He is a different kind of leader. He's compassionate. He's caring. He's, he gives leeway to his people, but you know, he doesn't want to be left in the dark. He doesn't want to be lied to. He wants there to be an open dialogue, but he wants there to be trust in that dialogue. And he wants to be involved in those conversations. And if you 
put your trust in him and tell him the truth, he will probably do his best to help you. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. He's probably, of all the major captains we've had, he might be the one that's, I don't know, Picard was really good with this. One of the ones that's just so emotionally attuned to the ship, to how the cast, or to how the cast, to how like the crew are doing. You know, Picard always kind of had that second feeling, that second, that gut instinct. And Pike, I'm kind of getting a little bit of that vibe with him, too. He's legitimately concerned about the overall well-being on not just people during missions, but on like their day-to-day lives. I mean, I think for me anyway, from, from my perspective, Pike seems to be the most, the most like a normal person. Right? Because the other captains are all kind of extreme in certain ways. Um you know, Kirk is the kind of the, the gunslinger cowboy, right? And Picard's the diplomat. And by the end of DS9, you know, Cisco is very extreme. He is the warrior um, by the end of DS9. Uh, Janeway is the hardcore scientist. Um, and Archer was always very obsessive about, um, you know, humanity as a whole and them not being held back. And that kind of was a shadow over everything that he did. And his father's memory was a shadow over everything that he did. Pike seems like a regular guy who moved up through the ranks. Yeah. And like even Janeway, another example where, because the situation her ship was in, she kind of went into things. I don't know how to say it almost with a level of overconfidence. Like she was, she had to be right. Because she knows the situations her ship is in. If she starts making mistakes as a captain, and maybe you can argue that some of her decisions were bad, or she made some mistakes with some of her decisions, but she had to go through day-to-day life thinking that she was making the right call. Because her mm-hmm. ship was stranded, there's no supplies, there's no hope. If the captain acts like they don't know what they're doing, the cast and her crew are going to fall apart. Yep. So she has to be... Arrogant is too strong of a word. She has to have that, that level of overconfidence to make sure that the ship is doing what it needs to be doing. And I get that. And it's like you said, Cisco kind of had that religious, then he's this, then he's dealing with his wife, and then he meets Cassidy Yates, but now he's a warrior through and through. And Picard, the diplomat, and I always love Picard with the religion thing, that one the one episode with the the proto-Vulcans that used to be religious. And right. The, the, uh, the anthropologists are like, oh, you know, well, you could just pretend to be their god or something. And Picard's like, no, I'm not going to send them back to the dark ages of <laughs> mysticism and sorcery or something. And yeah, Picard is very pragmatic and diplomatic. And Anson Mount is, you're right, he's the most, he's like the, the I mean, you can have a beer with Cisco, but this is the guy you could easily have a beer with. And he's, Ensign, you know, Bosco, how are you doing? And he's he legitimately wants his cast and crew, or his cast and crew, his crew to do well. He, he just feels like the everyman kind of person, you know, where, yeah, if you work hard and you're dedicated, you know, you will move up in the ranks and, you know, you could get your own command if you can handle the pressure. And he clearly can, but he doesn't seem just artificially fantastic at everything, which well, most of our captains have been. You know, our captains were always the top in something, <laughs> you know, um, right? Kirk's the only one who completed the, the Kobayashi Maru and... Um, you know, Picard is the captain of the flagship and Janeway's first captain assignment is a state of the art experimental science vessel. And, you know, like they're always, you know, the tops of the top. And, um, you know, Pike just feels more like what you would probably find in the fleet 
if you were to poll everybody. He's a good shuttlecraft pilot. That's pretty much that's, that's for pretty sure. much what his background is. <laughs> um, but it's cool. So so yeah. So we we learn a lot of like little details, right? They go. We know Starbase Eleven is near Talos now. Um, we know that Georgiou really has it out for Leland and just loves making him look bad because that only helps her. Um, you know, and Spock basically gets fixed by the end of the episode. Um, the banter between him and Burnham is really strong though. I, I like it a lot and I hope, I hope they're able to resolve some things because I want to hear more of that banter and less of it just being like her feeling bad for damaging their relationship. No, I'm definitely with you. And you know, I even love the resolution to the episode with the Talosians helping trick the sensors on the Section 31 ship. And yeah. Giorgio even kind of admitting it after, you know, they beam up fake, uh, the, they beam up the, the wrong illusions or they, they beam up the illusions of the care of the, of Spock and Burnham that they thought they had kidnapped, kidnapped. Uh, they thought they were beaming up. And even when that happens and Giorgio, she even slipped in and she's like, yep, when they tried that in my universe, I burned their planet to ash or something. I was like, ah. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing to bring up because here's a question. Do we know that it was successful or maybe it was an illusion that she destroyed them? <laughs> that, I mean, that, again, that's a good point. They are that powerful of telepaths. Maybe right? it's still an illusion. And But again, it's another example where she's not purposely hurting Leland. She's just letting him fall on his face. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, oh, I'm going to tell the admirals what I've did. And she's like, yeah, you have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's, you know. She's, she's watching throat. him fall apart and she's reaping yeah. all the benefits. She's definitely positioning herself to run section 31, which I'm sure is why she's getting her own show. Right. You know, and the, and the teaser for next week's episode is basically just, this is why you don't have AI on your ship because Miriam's going to go crazy. And so, yeah. So, so Ariam is like, clearly has like a virus. Right. So I guess the question is, who do you think created that virus? Because it's from the future. I keep calling her Miriam, don't I? It's Ariel. Yeah, it's all good. It happens. Miriam is a different Star Trek character. Uh, I, you know, the, a virus like that. I mean, there's species that we know of that are really good with technology and start within the Star Trek universe. I don't think it's anything. It's not the Borg. It's not anything. I don't think it's anything stupid like that. I, because it's, it's, it's there. The virus is there for a reason. If it just wanted to destroy Discovery, they could do, it could have done that already. Right. It's trying to do something for some reason, whether it's trying to find information or they're waiting for a very specific moment in time. So I think I, they're. I, don't know. I think there's. I think it's specifically after Section Thirty One. Oh. I don't think it actually has to do with Discovery at all. I think it's straight up Section 31, and that's the only way to get the the program or whatever to Section 31. Um, since we're talking about Arium, though, there's one little small rant I want to go on about her, because I'm seeing a, a good number of posts online about people complaining that she exists because Data is the first android in Starfleet. And um, just to kind of specify a little bit here, so first off, he was the first like, positronic android in Starfleet. We don't know what Arium is. I would imagine she's not positronic uh, because Data is supposed to be unique in that nature of him being 
Positronic, but we know very little about who she is, who Arium is. And so I find it very likely that she's just not a simple android that happens to be in Starfleet that was somehow overlooked. I don't really think that that's a plot hole or anything like that. I think that as we learn about her character, we will learn how she is different from Data and the other Positronic androids that we end up finding later on in Star Trek. I mean, I I, let, I think we have to give it an episode or two when she's a main part of the episodes. Until now, she hasn't been. And True. It's like Barkley. You know, Barkley was a little side character for a few episodes until all of a sudden they said, you know what, Barkley, we like, we like you, Dwight Schultz. Here's a few main episodes with you as the main character. And people fell in love with him. They liked him because he was goofy. He was nervous. He felt like an every person. Maybe that's what's going to happen with Arium. Or maybe she's going to purge the virus or something. Or maybe she's going to turn evil i don't know but it's you know let's give it an episode to see what goes on now you know there's there's a lot of interesting things about her character first off she's basically the same rank as data um because she's third in command she's the second officer which is why you actually see her in the command chair at one point um but you know she's she's been described as as two different things so far she's been described as a synthetic human human hybrid and she's been described as an augmented alien Um, she's all, you know, so an augmented human. So she's actually never been called an Android, uh, by anybody (laughs) who's actually working on the show. So I just kind of want to put that to, to rest a little bit. Well, again, it's as much as I make fun of discovery and T star Trek in general, and even early next generation at this point, there's nothing discovery can do that. Somebody won't find a way to complain about. And it, it, which drives me crazy because I think the show has legitimate complaints that people could have and nobody talks about it because they just focus on is Arium an android or not? I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, just why don't we focus on some of the things that the ship, that the show could actually do better versus the one background character that hasn't had no significant impact on the story just yet. I'm with you. I'm with you there. I get that. I just, that's kind of why if we're going to argue about things, if we're going to have a discussion about what discovery can do better, I want it to be as accurate as possible um, and not get us stuck in the weeds. Um, You know, this episode was really solid. Uh, I don't really have any complaints about it, to be totally honest with you. Uh, I've tried to come up with some uh, as I, as I do, but it was awesome. It was it was really good. Um, I like how yeah. when they're interacting on Talos, I got to give credit to Sonequa Martin-Green because I, I would like to know if this was an ad lib or not. But when she comments, she's like, you really think that beard is working? Because that's been a complaint <laughs> by a lot of fans is the beard does look a little weird. It's not like uh, perfect. It's not bad, but it's not perfect. And maybe it's Sonequa Martin-Green actually having fun, some fun. I Probably not. I'm sure it was written on purpose. But again, it's at least an acknowledgement that the showrunners do at least pay attention to the fans. It was a great line. It was a lot of fun. It's something a sibling would say, right? That's like, exactly you know, what a sibling would say. You know, I, uh, for people who don't know what I look like, I, I always keep a beard. I haven't, uh, I shaved it off once in a blue moon for a cosplay, but I always keep a beard and my little brother doesn't, he does it from time to time. And so when I see him one way or the other, I always say something about it. <laughs> you know? for, the, for those of you all listening right now, Derek has a beard very similar to Ash Tyler's. That's not that long. Yeah. I mean, you trimmed it up a little bit, but you've had, you have had very similar to Tyler. 
Yeah. I, te- I I mean, I, I feel like mine's a little bit closer to the Riker beard. I just don't have the head of hair that Riker has. Yeah, you've got the Tyler beard. I've got Tyler's hair. It's, it's, the, <laughs> per- it's the perfect combination for hosts of a, of a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> Together, our, our forces combined make Ash Tyler. <laughs> to, to form Tyvoke. So what was the Twitter results for this episode? I know it was one of the Skewed. highest ratings. Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, at, at the end of the day, season two has been very well received in all of our polls. Uh, but this one is like no contest. So 83% gave it an A with 11% giving it a B. So 94% uh, gave it a B or higher. 3% gave it a C and 3% gave it a D or lower. So this episode was really, really loved. Uh, we got a couple of comments on there. One person, uh, 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 Shanna Gilkerson, uh, Gilkson, Gilk, Gilk, Gilkson. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. But uh, Shanna Gilkson uh, said, are you kidding me? Where's the option for giving it extra credit? <laughs> um, and uh, I'm sorry, Twitter only gives us four options. I, I wish I could do more because then I wouldn't have to do D or lower. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, just there's some good comments out there from people. Just very well received overall. Um, there's not much bad to say about it, right? I mean, it it's well written. It's well acted. The special effects were great. The makeup work was great. The story is continuing in a very interesting way from multiple angles. You know, as you mentioned, you've got the Talos stuff with Spock and Burnham. You've got the Colburn Ash Tyler stuff. You've got the Arium stuff. You've got the Section 31 stuff. I mean, there are just a lot of moving parts right now, and it just makes me want to keep seeing the next episode. So if I have anything to say, I just want to say thank you for not splitting this into two parts like season one, and I can just keep watching what happens. (laughs) Yeah, let us enjoy it while we can, especially since Game of Thrones is coming back in a month and this DS9 and Disco will be finishing right around that point. So thank you for not splitting it in two, because... We don't need two fandoms like Game of Thrones and Star Trek beating the hell out of each other for viewers, even though most of us would just watch both anyways. That's fair. That's fair. Um, what, what did you? So would you have given it an A as well? Oh, it's it's a flat. It's an A for me. Yeah, me too. No, no question about that. Um, it's yeah, it was great. But uh, but yeah, so so next week we have Project Daedalus. Is that how you pronounce that? D A E D A L U S. Oh, Daedalus. Daedalus. Okay, project because I know there was uh, a lot of people were talking like, is that referencing to the Daedalus class starship that was an early uh, explorer ship? I mean, probably not because that they already did that next generation where they found the Horizon, which I think was a Daedalus class ship. So I don't think they're going to do that. But the, the word Daedalus, I think, in history has always dealt with exploration and and such. I know it's a Greek word of some kind. There's gotcha. probably someone out there like Greg. It's not Greek. <laughs> it's, it's Athenian. I'm like, you know what? I know that's fine. I'm sorry, Athens. It's Athenian. <laughs> it's Spartan. It's, you know, a pirate. I don't know. but That's, pro- that's probably from Themyscira, really. Um... There, oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, now there's somebody Googling that right now. <laughs> Wait, that's where Wonder Woman's from. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Speaking well, of Wonder okay. Woman, before we close out, go see Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah. No, so we are actually, right after recording this, I'm going to do our live episode of Screen Heroes, and that's what we're reviewing this week is Captain Marvel. So the episode will come out uh, the day after this one. Um, Make sure you share on Screen Heroes that your co-host of Red Shirts loved it. Oh, well, absolutely. I can do that. 
uh, yeah, definitely go see Captain Marvel. Uh, even if you're not an MCU fan, the nature of the film makes it a really good jumping on point. And it also makes me want to see when I saw Brie Larson in, in the actual Marvel uniform, makes me want to see her on Star Trek. That'd be cool. I'd be good with that. That'd be fun. She's way too popular now, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe she's a big Trek fan. Uh, maybe if they do another movie. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, but uh, I know we're getting ready to close out, but the episode was great. Uh, if memory serves, was fantastic. Everybody should take it. You know, if you're just finishing this podcast, go watch the episode again. Uh, but before we exit, Derek, how can people find you online? Because we're getting a lot more communication on Twitter these days. Yeah, so I am the Star Trek dude on Twitter. I've also got a, a Facebook page if you want to talk to me there. Or like I said, you can find me on Screen Heroes here on the Heroes Podcast Network. And I am the underscore Bittersteel on Twitter. It's probably where I'm most active, usually with Derek on the Red Shirts uh, Twitterverse as we interact with all of our fans and other podcasts that are out there. So, But this show is Red Shirts and Runabouts, if you don't know by now. It's part of the Heroes Podcast Network. You can find us anywhere where you can find other podcasts such as, you know, iTunes, Google Play. But like the another recommendation I give to my colleagues at work is you can just Google Red Shirts and Runabouts now. And it'll actually bring up the Heroes Podcast Network website. We're actually getting enough traffic that it's finding us pretty easily. So again, this was, uh, we did a couple things different this week, talking about the timeline and if the, mem- the random memory alpha article. So Derek, um, I guess we get to look forward to next week, my friend. Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right. Take care, everybody out there. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network and is hosted by Gregory Bosco and me, Derek Mayer. The music is by Flying Killer Robots. Please follow us at Red Shirts Pod on Twitter or at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or HeroesPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our show on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and pretty much any other podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please support us. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash heroespodcasts, and we also have a coffee, ko-fi.com slash heroespodcasts. We'll catch you next time. Live long and prosper.